0: Five, four, three, two, one,
1: zero. All engines running. Monday, Monday, Monday. June 26th at your local school gymnasium. It's the election so nice, they held it twice. Toronto mayor will vote two. Election. That's right. We're going back to the polls and it's not just the temperature outside that's about to get hot. Over 50 candidates to choose from featuring Perennial candidate Olivia, Olivia Chow, Chow, Chow Mushy Chow, middle Chow, Matt Lau and, and Brad the Brad Bradford Also Chloe Brown, Anna Lau, Mark Sanders, Anthony Perusa That insult from Twitter And a former actor turned alt-right pundit And many more If you're not registered you better be d- If you can't leave your house Mail that boat in June 26th, only at participating polling stations, it's the mayoral vote redo. This is Spacing Radio. Casting from a sense of civic optimism I should know better than to foster, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, the Ontario line is moving quickly ahead, but how do we ensure we get the most value for money? Spacing contributor Shoshana Sachs says the secret lies in our transit history. But first, we are indeed going back to the polls in Toronto to replace the mayor and the field is crowded. We talked to *Spacing* senior editor John Lawrence and author and Toronto Metropolitan University associate professor Cheryl Thompson about some of the frontrunners and the promises we've heard so far. Stand by, Cheryl, John. I wanted to begin with uh, the former police chief Mark Saunders because, uh, in some ways, he he might be considered. The sort of front runner in this race, just because of, you know, how high profile he was when he was the police chief. You know his his former, albeit failed, candidacy as a conservative uh, was it MP or MPP? MPP. The name is known. Um, he was quite quite a public figure for years, uh, and so uh, let's let's begin with him, uh, Cheryl. You you wrote a piece for Spacing talking about Mark Saunders and, and performative allyship. I wonder if you could begin by kind of explaining what, uh, in case listeners don't know, what is the concept of performative allyship?
2: Well, I mean, I think people think that when you use that term, you're only addressing like a white person. So a white person who is sort of publicly either pledging allegiance or support for some Black cause that typically has to do with some violence that a black person has experienced, or uh, typically police violence that a black person has experienced, or just public displays of, you know, I'm here for you, but there's really no action behind that or or any real politics behind that in terms of like a black agenda. It's just you attaching yourself, <laughs> essentially to the public outcry and seemingly, being an ally for that person in their moment of struggle.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned in your piece, uh, Saunders came in as, as kind of a champion of carding the policy for, for listeners of, of stopping people, often racialized people, uh, um, demanding information, uh, and, uh, you know, that, that was rightfully, um, shouted out of, uh, out of policy, but, uh, you know, that, that's how he, he began. And, uh, the political winds changed and, and they don't uh, at least uh, overtly do that anymore. You know, so, so that, that was how he began. But then you, you write about how he was taking a knee during Black Lives Matter protests and, and things like that. And like you said, saying, I'm, I'm here for you.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think now, of course, we have the benefit of retrospect. And I think he knew that he was probably going to be leaving because of his health issues. So it was kind of like a nice way to exit to say, you know, I know I've not been here for you. And I know most of you don't like me, but let me at least on my way out, show some kind of goodwill gesture that, Hey, you know, and also let's be realistic. I think the summer of 2020, like everybody lost their mind, right? Like everybody, everybody was suddenly doing things that they probably would not have Done. And since then, we've witnessed really tragic black death broadcast on TV and social media. And you don't see anywhere near that level of public outcry or displays of emotion from police chiefs. Right. So there was something unique about that moment. And I think he just like our prime minister, because I invoke him as well in that piece. They all kind of got caught up in the 2020 like global uprising energy it's <laughs> mm-hmm. the best way I can describe it
1: as well in terms of that you know performing one thing and, and doing another uh, the the LGbtq plus community felt very betrayed by him when they were trying to tell him in the Toronto Police Service that there was uh, a serial killer targeting people in the gay village in Toronto on the other hand he's saying oh I support pride and, and all these things and you know he kind of was there through the will police march in the parade or won't they uh sort of saying i'll I'll listen to the community but when when it truly mattered uh that community did not feel listened to at all
2: the truth is you don't suddenly become an ally like it's it's actually years of work and it's 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 more for me allyship is actually more about community building so why are you an ally because you've been in the trenches with people and you've built community with them. So you really understand where they're coming from. And I think on many fronts, Saunders just doesn't understand. I don't even think he understands black people, to be honest. Like, I think he understands his own point of view and the people that he knows, but the community writ large, which is very diverse very, um, in terms of demographics, in terms of socioeconomic class, in terms of identity, just how people identify. I just think he's a bit out of touch and that, and I'm, I'm not being an ageist here, but it could have a little bit to do with his age as well. You know, he's a different era and a lot of the LGBTQIA people today they're just born in a different era and the way they show up and the way they expect to be seen and heard is very different than when he was a young person. Right? So I think there is a little bit of a generational divide and just not really understanding how to relate to, especially younger black people who who just show up in the world in a very different way. I think he's a little out of touch when it comes to that.
1: But now with his announcement uh, that that he wants the mayor's job, He's kind of positioning himself as this tough-on-crime guy. Uh, John, you you wrote about him recently as well for Spacing, uh, and you mentioned that his slogan is Enough is Enough, which I'm almost 100% sure is also the title of that absolutely uh, ludicrous Eric Clapton COVID protest song uh, that came out a year or two ago. Um, but it also seems like just such a weak thing to get behind enough is enough enough of what uh but um <laughs> you, you know maybe we can talk a bit about this um you know someone who was in charge of the police for for the longest time and and in recent memory saying that uh you know this this city has gone to hell in a handbasket and uh, i'm the only one that can stop it when he did have years uh, to address some of these things uh, john what what did you think uh, with uh, his positioning there
0: Well, I think that he's using a very slogan-based campaign. The other word that he likes to use is status quo, right? So you attack the status quo, whatever it is that you don't like, and then you say enough is enough. And then you you retweet, uh, you know, he retweets the Toronto Police Service incident tweets um, of somebody who's been stabbed or hit by a car or something, uh, which is deeply inappropriate. Uh, (laughs) This is my view of his candidacy, that The police chief is the single highest profile civil servant in our society. In any city, everybody knows who the police chief is, and most people have no idea who any other civil servant is. And the flipping over to seeking public office, to my mind, is like just completely taking advantage of that profile and capitalizing on it in a way that is not available to any other individual. And I mean, this is not consistent with the way we allow people to stand for elections, but I don't really think police chiefs should be able to seek higher public office. And that includes Saunders and Blair and Fantino and all the rest of them. A, because they have this advantage, right? They're starting, you know, they're starting on third base, where most people are starting on, you know, uh, home plate. Uh, and the other thing is, is that I really question the ability of a police chief to have any kind of meaningful distance over uh, the governance of the you know the Toronto Police Service you know I mean i don 't know how that's even possible you know you imagine all the the cell phone numbers of senior Toronto police service officers in his phone right which he can contact at the drop of a hat and like how do you create any kind of uh, distance there I mean he is he, if he's elected, he would have an automatic seat on the police service board. It's a farce, I think. It's a travesty because then, you know, all of that public governance just disappears.
1: And in terms of this tough on crime thing, I mean, I think listeners will all be familiar with the work of Desmond Cole. He he would always say to to watch it very closely for uh, terms like public safety, um, that, you know, these, these words, safety... Usually, end up in practice meaning cracking down on marginalized people who are already, you know, targeted by police forces and and, and things like that. And uh, no one's going to campaign in a sense like say that outright. But uh, a number of people are campaigning on this kind of idea of public safety, or we're going to crack down on crime. And uh, I, I wonder if if that is a concern about what that will actually mean on the ground. I think that
0: he's targeting his messaging probably to people who don't use the TTC, but who read about it and, you know, may never use the TTC because they live in the suburbs and they drive to work in the 905. And, uh, you know, you're absolutely correct. Safety is a whistle. It's a dog whistle word. Cheryl, what do you think?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think (laughs) I actually see a lot of what, mark saunders says is like that was a really interesting point but this is 2023 right like the whole idea of safety and the whole conversation it just feels so antiquated like we're not actually at safety we're like the system is broken Mm -hmm. and even even the rich white people who (laughs) live in in yorkville are like i think the system is broken (laughs) like everyone is actually on agreement with that that is an amazing kind of moment, I think, in history where the rich and the poor all agree that the system really is not working. It's just that we have very different remedies for that problem, right? And so it's not a question of safety. It's like the system is broken and what are you going to do to fix it? And fixing a system is not increasing the arms of the state. I just see police as an extension of the state. So you can increase them, but that actually doesn't fix the issue of the system. So it's just like a, it's like a bandaid on a gashing wo- gushing wound. It's like, okay, I mean, it, it might slow down the blood flow, but it's not going to heal you and it's not going to prevent anything. So I just think one of the things that I have noticed in this mayoral election so far, and I, and I'm very curious to see with all these candidates, how they're going to manage a debate or the debates, like what are they actually going to do in that regard? Right? Yeah. Because you really kind of have to see what everyone is saying on this issue of quote unquote crime, because that's how it's going to be uh, framed. It's always going to be framed of crime and and safety and not, okay, why don't we just have a real like substantive conversation about how the policies of the last 20 years are actually failing. It's, it's not really one person. It's, it's subsequent mayoral stints in office Mm -hmm. have failed us. I would say since really the 1990s. And so, I I actually resist the idea of putting everything on John Tory or putting everything on a mayor before John Tory. It's like, we're talking about maybe five or six mayors of just some really bad decisions, especially as it relates to zoning. I think a lot of the crime that we're seeing today is the way that communities have been rezoned and remapped over the last 20 years. We're just now seeing the results of that. And so it's coming in as crime and safety, but it's actually an infrastructure decision of maybe 20 years ago that is now showing itself to be flawed. And and what the question is, what are we going to do now that we actually do know that? And most of the remedies are, let's just band-aid the situation and not actually address the infrastructure issues.
1: Right. And a, another candidate who is uh, announced very early, also kind of as a, a tough-on-crime public safety, but also claiming to be a change candidate much like saunders seems to be is is counselor brad bradford and for listeners who aren't familiar he kind of he came in as a self-styled progressive um you know he he rides a bike he, he sometimes will push for housing uh you know credit where it's due he he did push for uh you know the modular housing units uh, during the pandemic in his ward which uh you know, a lot of people were hostile, too. They they didn't want to, you know, unhoused people in, in their backyard, so to speak. Now he comes out and he tells the star that he's going to be like John Tory, only faster, but also a change candidate. And uh, I don't really know how he can circle that square, but that, that seems to be the message of his campaign.
0: Well, I mean, Brad's problem is that he's the meat in the sandwich here because he's not as plausibly conservative as saunders or whoever's to the right of saunders and he's not very well known like he's been in office for five years before that he was you know he was a planner at the city of toronto so he's not a brand name figure around the city and the other issue with him is that he has like this legion of very devoted haters in his backyard you know it's a it's a weird dynamic with him because there are a lot of you know, there are a lot of people who are very, you know, invested in really despising Brad Bradford. It's actually surprising. I haven't seen that degree of vitriol too often. I mean, it, it happens, but uh, it's quite focused. And I personally don't think he's going to make it to the finish line because at a certain point, people who want to support the right are going to choose, right? They're going to say which one is the most plausible, winnable figure. And I don't think that he wins in that configuration against Saunders.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you know, my dad used to have a saying with certain people, he would say, you know, you, you shake their hand, count, count, count your fingers to see if they're all there. <laughs> and, and I just, I, I have, um, I'm not a hater. I don't have, I don't have a, a hatred towards him, but I do have like an innate visceral response <laughs> that doesn't feel good. And, and I can't actually pinpoint what it is. And the the thing that he did about the Patties in Scarborough kind of really just kind of said, oh, OK. I don't know if that's where we want to go with this. So there's there's with him. I just think I don't know. There's just something again. It's like, you know, I, I, I keep laughing because I think I can't actually pinpoint what it is that I don't like. But I just know that. It's, it, it's probably not going to be good for me it's like when you're eating soup you ever had like soup and you're like god what is in this like there's just something in this that you that you know you don't like but you don't know what it is because it's a soup it's all mixed up together you cannot pinpoint and and that's 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 what I'm where I'm at with him it's and I think why that's an issue is because the truth is if you go over the history of mares that we've had again over the last 30 years uh 20 years since amalgamation they've all kind of been, They've had big personalities. Like, like I, they're so visceral, like it's, you have a visceral reaction to them. And I, and I do think you do need that as a mayor. There has to be something really like high vibrational about you. Like really like, and, and to be honest, I actually had not really heard of him until the Patty incident. I didn't even know anything about him. And so that was my first, that's my first glimpse of you (laughs) as a black person from Scarborough. You know, that's not going to leave a good taste in my mouth pun intended because it's patties and everything
1: <laughs> for listeners uh, who, who might have missed it or, or don't spend as much time on Twitter as, as I do, uh, uh or maybe all three of us do, but, uh, early, uh, I think maybe even before he announced that he was running he had a very campaigny kind of thing where he is stepping out of a of a Scarborough bakery that that makes the the warden station patties uh you know famous if, if there's listeners outside of Toronto you know you, you stop the station you gotta get a patty but uh it it rung disingenuous and people were on on Twitter saying this man has never had a patty in his life uh it it, it was like one of it was kind of his opening shot of a campaign, and it did not go well, at least on, on Twitter. But, you know, maybe that's a different different crowd. I'm not sure.
0: The interesting thing about this particular incident is that it's so common in mayoral politics for the candidate to sort of name check a group, right? And like in the yeah. last you know, they're going to Eid festivals or, you know, yeah. Ramadan breakfast or this or that, you know, wearing some kind of headgear or some kind of bracelets. <laughs> David Miller had a bracelet around his wrist for the entire term of his mayoralty from a visit to Sikh temple. So it's quite a kind of a ordinary thing to do. But it's somehow it kind of really did leave a weird impression. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, I'm not quite sure why it stood out so much, but it definitely did.
2: Well, because, first of all, if we want to I did write a whole chapter for you know the dumpling book on patties so i like to think now that makes me a patty expert it's like why did you just pick scarborough you should have went to Bathurst station like it should have been a battle like it should have been a conversation that would have felt really authentic like right instead you went to the one place and first of all if you're in scarborough you're not going there you're going to warden station so why didn't he just go to warden station like it as a as an authentic scarbarian i just didn't understand why you were going to like the 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 wholesale (laughs) location. (laughs) And then you're talking about this is the best place. But Why didn't you just go to the station? Like it, it means you've probably never been to warden station. And if you've never been to warden station, that means you don't actually understand Scarborough. So right there, you, I think it was just a misassessment on his part. It's like, you've now kind of alienated a whole segment of the city on a, on a miscalculation. And I think if you can miscalculate what is like essentially a promo, Let's think of the major issues that we have going on here. I I just think it was something that will kind of see him kind of just fade as we get more into the into the race. I just even though it seems so minor, it's like, but we got major issues and you can't get a little promo right for Instagram. So I just think. We need a mayor that's serious. And I think he is serious about, about being a counselor. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've started to like see him on TV and the things that he says, and he does say a lot of good things, but you know, to be mayor is different. You know, you sort of need a a certain gravitas to be mayor and a real understanding of you're, you're not just actually serving the people of Toronto, right? You're serving stakeholders. You're, you've got to negotiate with the province, with the federal government. Like, you kind of have to be on a certain level. And I, I, for me, I just don't think he's there yet.
1: And John, you mentioned that the, his haters, uh, I mean, there are a, a number of uh, what seem to be grassroots campaigns, although I, I don't know if anyone's been able to confirm, you know, who, who is funding these these kind of websites, uh, the anti, a, anti-Brad anti websites, anti-Anna Bailao websites. You know, I, what I will say about that, though, is I I do, as someone who who has watched these votes happen over the course of numbers of years, I do really hate when candidates bank on people's short political memories, or just that they they aren't able to pay as close attention as as people like us are, and a lot of these uh, people who have had roles in government before, especially at the Toronto level are just completely flip-flopping and just expecting that no one will notice. And that drives me wild. Yeah. You know, in fairness, those votes sometimes can be
0: quite subtle. And, you know, sometimes there's a very clear flip-flop and sometimes a uh, counselors' position evolves because there's been a deal that's been cut and they're trying to sort of find a consensus. So, you know, the whole business of vote tracking is a little bit dicey for that reason if you've ever done it and it, it is actually it can be a little bit difficult to interpret what a particular vote means there's an interesting thing with these websites so I I got into it with the uh, with the anti-Bradford crowd because I at one point I asked you know who's behind this website because it looked like they were spending you know not scouts of money but some money And, you know, I got a lot of pushback because it's like, you know, we don't want to be exposed, you know, well, you know, there are threats and so on, which, you know, does happen in our electoral politics these days. But at the same time, I do know that it's entirely possible to kind of, you know, gin up something like that using somebody's special ops division, right? And I've seen it in previous elections where you know crazy stuff comes out of the woodwork and then eventually it's traced to a rival campaign so it's interesting that elections toronto is trying to get to the you know try to figure out who these entities are um i have no idea whether they'll succeed but it's kind of intriguing to watch
1: yeah cuz we don't know the answer to that yet and as you say elections toronto is trying to figure out if if it's something is contravening election laws there but I will say that both Bradford and Bailao have come out as change candidates. That's their branding. Uh, but they were staunch Tory defenders. They, they voted with Tory at almost every single turn. Yeah. Uh, there was very little daylight between Tory's marching orders and, and how the both of them voted. So, yeah, I don't know how they can come in and say, well, we are the change now.
2: <laughs> well, I think um, Bailao is a little different because she left. Like, right. I think the fact that she left helps her, right? And we don't know the reasons why she left. Like, she gave some reasons. Like, I've been in politics a long time, and it's time to step away and all that. Like, who knows if this was always the agenda, you know? Like, this was always the plan. Step away, give some time away, and then when when there is an opportunity to run, I will seem fresh. I won't seem like I've just been voting for Tory all this time because there's been a gap and to your point people's memories are very short so some people are probably like oh was she a city councillor when (laughs) like they might not even remember right so and that's a good thing and i and the one thing i will say about her just listening like she does sound fresh forget what she's saying it's just her delivery is very commanding and it's very assertive and it's it doesn't seem disingenuous she seems like she really knows what she's talking about. Like, you know, one of the things, who was it um, in the U.S. election? Someone had this whole campaign where it was like on day one, everything was like on day one, like, here's what I'm going to do. And, day, and, and the truth is, that's her whole brand. Like day one, I'm ready to go. I know what to do. I'm already making calls. And I think there's something good about that. And then there's something not so good about that. Right. It's like, you know, I'm a professor. I always think about the students who are so keen for the midterm. I'm like, ooh, (laughs) are you okay? (laughs) Like, there's something about that that gives you a little bit of a, like, oh, I don't know. I don't like that feeling either. Right. Like, it's almost like when someone is too hot or too cold with her. And I think she's very prepared. But do we want another mayor who is like that? Because Tori was kind of like that, right? Always prepared and always had the right thing to say. And and i feel like a lot of the issues that we're having here is because of that style of leadership.
1: Let's uh let's switch to uh, another candidate, uh councilor Josh Matlow, who is being targeted by the others as as the status quo candidate. And you know, in in some ways he is. He's kind of a center-left guy, uh I'd say liberal party guy. But he he came out of the gate saying that uh, you know, you need to raise taxes to pay for things. That's kind of refreshing in the city of Toronto, because we've been hearing for years that, in fact, we don't need to raise taxes, and we can still have everything we want, uh, and it'll all just work out somehow. He also has an affordable housing plan that, uh, John, you wrote about uh, recently. I guess, first, let's talk about his housing policy, because uh, I found that interesting. His housing policy is sort of substantively different than
0: Tory's, in that, in this one very specific regard, that he wants to build housing on city-owned property, which is a good idea. And there's lots of city-owned property, and a lot of it is not really working very hard. Tory also wanted to do that through a program he called Housing Now. Tory's program would have combined both uh, market and affordable on these sites that they identified, and it would all be rental. And what Matlow wants to do is say, okay, well, it's all going to be affordable at different kind of levels of affordability, and they're not going to go for market rates and that he's going to, you know, he's going to invest some of the savings from, you know, stopping the gardener project as a sort of a seed fund and get it going. Now, this is one of these ideas where many things have to fall into place for that to happen. And I have to say that, you know, I've been doing a lot of reporting on the housing now, which would seem to have been a an easier achievement still has not, it's not out of the gate yet. It's like four and a half years later, it's still plodding along. So I can give him laurels for his, you know, his vision for saying, okay, well, we need to make the best use of public assets, which is to say the land and a, you know, caution that you know, a lot of things have to go right in order for that to come, in, to, come to
1: fruition. Yeah. As well as uh, in terms of crime and public safety, uh, as all the other candidates are talking about, it seems, he he is kind of notable for saying, well, I'm going to put that money, I'm going to divert funding from the police, and I'm going to put it towards the social causes of of these realities. You know, programs for youth— all kinds of things like that, which which he has been advocating for as a counselor for quite some time. I, I guess that is to say that while he's not this extreme left candidate, he is very much not another John Tory. He he has been a thorn in John Tory's side. He was a thorn in Rob Ford's side. Uh, so whatever you think of his platform, and you it's know, still early days, but he, he's very much not a John Tory type.
2: No, I mean, he's, I don't know. He's, he's a tough one for me. (laughs) They're all tough because he's like kind of a bleeding heart. He's like a bleeding heart a little bit, but then he also seems like he's a deal maker at the same time. Like he's like, okay, I, I'm really passionate about this, but I'll let it go. If we can come to a consensus, like he's not going to push, like, I, I just, I've always seen Josh Matlow as someone who's like, I will fight for you. I will fight for this. But if it gets down to it and I'm outnumbered, you know, I, I, okay, okay, okay. And maybe next time, like he just is like one of those people who, yes, I like his energy and um, I have never voted for him, even though he is in my writing. Like I think I'm supposed to be voting for him, but I, I haven't. Um, so, but I, so I know him and I know how he he presents himself and he's been consistent. I give him this much. Like he actually has been very consistent on his politics and he's never, I don't think he's really flip-flopped that much on stuff. Like it's, you can go back and see like a good track record of like, to your point, it's not fully left, but it's definitely left of center. But my, my issue with him is a little bit, the same issue that I have with Brad Bradford. It's like, I just don't get, it's like a character issue issue. I don't get that I am fully in charge of myself and able to uh, uh, assert myself as a leader. Right. I always think to myself, you know, like he's like, a if they could do like a second in command type person, he's like that. He's like that advisor to the president kind of thing to really keep the person in check with like, here's a reality check, but he's not the person that I know in a crisis I would feel comfortable making decisions that's just how i feel about him and I, and that has nothing really to do with his politics that's just that's just what it is it's like the best player on the team isn't always captain right right you know john i'm a basketball person like if you go back to like the 1990s chicago bulls michael jordan wasn't captain mm-hmm. he but best player probably of all time but he was not captain of the team think yeah. about that yeah. right so i think that's where i'm at with with matlow
0: Matlow, to me, tracks like a classic leader of the opposition, right? He's like, he's very good at kind of picking away at government positions. And of course, there are lots of people who were leaders of the opposition who go on to be the premier or the prime minister and do a great job. And then there are some who, you know, for whom it's like uh, oppositional politics is kind of, you know, in their DNA. And I haven't quite figured out which is which with Josh. You know, when I'm looking at this campaign, my basic dilemma is this that I would say that Anna Bylaw is temperamentally more suited to be mayor, but I find her politics to be a little further to the right that I, I like. And Matlow is his politics are in the place that I like, but I'm not sure he's suited to be temperamentally suited to be mayor. That's a temper. Totally.
2: I mean, you know, you just summed it up. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. Absolutely.
1: Also, I, I will say, uh, lest uh, a, a thousand screaming uh, EMB bros on, on Twitter come after me, that uh, Mallow's record in, in a ward that is particularly the center of development in Toronto has has not always been uh, super pro-building. Uh, he, he has been very anti the OMB, as it was called before, the LPAT, or whatever it's called now he he has sometimes decried that we are building too much too fast too high granted his ward in particular is the site of many very large scale developments uh, in a mm-hmm. way that other wards are not but uh just I will mention that because it's a thing that frustrates a, a lot of people a lot of uh, pro development people housing people so while we we talked about his his affordable housing plan that's that's kind of been his position of development in general uh, uh, John, I'm sure you could say more about that
0: so I think it's a mark of maturity of a city councillor when they have both forms in their in their wards, both house neighborhoods and vertical neighborhoods and the to me, the mark of mature, maturity is to be able to reconcile those two constituencies, yeah. and too often, i mean we have a city where elected. Politicians have mostly kowtowed to the people living in house neighborhoods at the expense of people who are living in vertical neighborhoods. And like you just really need in a city with 50% of the population are living in rental apartments, you really need to have somebody who can say, okay, these are this is the right thing to do for everybody, not just the people who are older and homeowners and vote.
1: You know, it's interesting to me as well. People say there's no parties in municipal politics, but there are official, kind of unofficial back channels. In this election so far, that doesn't seem to be happening. We don't see all the major parties forming behind one candidate. I'm just thinking: Josh Matlow is a liberal. Mitzi Hunter is a liberal MPP. Uh, there was another liberal MPP's name escapes me. Uh, it doesn't seem like all the parties are are getting behind one person. And that I find that kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, but I mean, let's face it, the federal government and the provincial government, they're putting out their own fires. <laughs> like, I think they don't even have time right now yeah. to really embroil themselves in this until maybe it gets closer to, like, we get to maybe a top three sense of like, okay, these are the top, the top runners here. And I think that's the reason. Like, there's a lot going on in Canada right now. On, especially at the federal and provincial level in Ontario and I think and also I don't think the candidates at this stage would even benefit from the intervention of any premier or prime minister at this stage.
1: That's a good point, yeah.
0: Although there are a lot of the Ford government and Ford's advisors are very invested in Saunders. Yes. Uh, I think we should also say that Olivia Chow is in the race as of Monday and you know she's much more traditionally associated with NDP. She was an NDP MPP. Um, she's, you know, her campaign is being run by veteran NDP organizer. So, you know, I, I feel like I could see the party alignments, but what we don't see yet is the, is the winnowing. Although, you know, this afternoon, Gil Petaloza pulled out and threw his support behind Olivia.
1: Wow. So I didn't even
0: so, see that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I, I didn't yeah. know that. Well, I mean, I, you know, I get all the, uh, I get all the press releases. So that was just two hours old. So
2: well, I mean, I can tell you that when I when Olivia Chow announced, I was like, okay, I'm in this now. (laughs) Like I, I I felt a sense of energy around her in particular, as someone who has not spent the last 10 years in city council, as someone who has an understanding of both provincial and federal. I I was like oh okay this is really getting interesting and to be honest I still think Olivia Chow does benefit from the Jack Layton memory and a lot of people myself included absolutely loved Jack Layton like he could not do any wrong by me and and I met and I've met Olivia and Jack Layton like three four times over the years. So I have a personal connection in that sense that I just, I just see what I've seen in person is the same person that I see on TV. And I think why she excites me in this race is because I actually think this election is going to come down to, it's not even going to come down to your politics. It's going to come down to authenticity. Like who do we think is the most truthful of these candidates that we trust. It's going to come down to trust because everyone's going to say we have to fix the problem of crime. Everyone's going to say, Oh, the subways, everyone's going to talk about housing. They're going to talk about all taxes, right? They're all going to say sort of the same things, but it's like, who do we believe? (laughs) Right. And I think if we talk about that and, and just understanding, you know, teaching like advertising courses and understanding about messaging, the thing about messaging that's really tricky because it's, it's not, sometimes it's not what you're saying. It's literally the essence that you're giving off, right? So you could be saying the most amazing thing, but people are like, he seems cold to me. And you're like, what does that even mean? How can they fix that? And the truth is they can't fix that. That's the problem. And usually when candidates lose, it's those intangible things why they lose. Like I saw Olivia Chow in an interview where she said, you know, the last time she ran, she was listening to all her handlers who said she had to say this or she was reading off this and she was nervous about her accent and she, her English wasn't perfect. And she said, now I'm throwing that all out the window. And I was like, thank you. Now you probably have a chance because you're going to actually be yourself and you're going to be able to connect to people because you're not being handled so much. So I think it's, you know, we live in a time in politics where we know what that even means (laughs) like right we know that there's like the the influencers and the people behind the scenes we really got a sense of it now 20 years ago the truth is we didn't know as much the veil between the backstage and the front stage with political candidates was much darker let's put it that way now you can kind of see through it and i think that's why it make that's why elections are much harder now to win like majority
1: john thoughts on olivia i mean she's certainly the Kind of a no-brainer for an NDP candidate, but uh, you know, can can she change the the landscape here?
0: So I completely agree with Cheryl. This question about the inauthent- inauthenticity of her voice in the twenty fourteen campaign it was very obvious. And my observation, longstanding that that people could hear authenticity or inauthenticity. This is why. Ford, Rob Ford won because they, you know, he communicated with people at a very basic level. And I think that- I feel
2: like the minute you call someone a dingbat, they're like, oh, he's real.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I'm glad that Olivia is going to use, you know, she's going to be authentic. And I think that her challenge is then to marry that with a real uh, sense of energy. And I have to say that I watched, you know, the launch a little bit. Not in person, but um, you know, in, on video. And it, I, you know, I wasn't sort of fully persuaded that her energy is all there. And then I also think that what she needs to do is come out with a a goal, a thing that she wants to achieve, yeah. besides something sort of general. Like I wrote this column a couple of weeks ago. I think it was a couple of weeks ago because Jack Layton used to say his politics were proposition, not opposition, and Uh, I always think that's a, it's just a great way of thinking about a lot of urban things. And so she has to propose something Mm -hmm. other than herself and her own lived experience and her political experience. There has to be something else to her candidacy that people can kind of get excited about.
2: Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way about Mitzi Hunter. It's like, I still don't know what that is. (laughs) Like, you know, she's making little announcements here and there, but I just don't understand what the candidacy candidacy is. What is your platform? Like, what is your? To me, the biggest the biggest thing a leader has to be able to convey is what do you believe, right? Like, what are your beliefs? Like, and what is it? Like you said, what is what is it that you? If it's not one thing or maybe two, anything beyond two, it's just seeming like, okay, you can't fix it all. But what is it that you want to fix? Identify the problem. Tell us what the solution is. And there's a lot of these candidates right now. Yeah, like you, John, I just don't know. I I don't know what they believe. I don't know what their platform actually is. But they're just saying a lot of stuff that I think they think the public wants to hear from them.
0: Like this is the thing about Saunders is that Saunders, you you know what you're going to get. (laughs) <laughs> with soldiers, right and the thing with josh's campaign um is it's sort of it's kind of the inverse of um where olivia is now you know admittedly olivia is only as of this as of our conversation today has only been in for a little bit but josh's campaign is like you know a policy big policy platform every three days mm-hmm. and you know so he's kind of laying down markers for the rest of the campaign but there's also a question about whether or not you're going to kind of dilute, over dilute the message, you know, like, what do you stand for? Well, he's, you know, he's going to do this and this and this and this and this. And, and so sort of people get lost, in, lost in the, you know, the sort of the denseness of his platform, you
1: know, and Saunders is like, law and order. That's it. That's what yeah. you're going to get. Finally, whoever becomes the mayor, they will have to deal with the person who seems like he wants to be the mayor of Toronto, but is actually the premier of Ontario, Doug Ford. It's interesting that's Ontario Place, of all things, has kind of become one of the big issues in this mayoral campaign. Will will you fight against Doug Ford's proposal for it? You know, can you? I, I found it was interesting that Anna Bailao said she was going to move the science center down to Ontario Place. Anna Bailao, who whose advisor is Nick Kuvalis, a longtime advisor to the Ford family, uh, and then shortly after that, Doug Ford himself said, "Yeah, we're going to move it." To Ontario Place, even though Doug Ford is backing Mark Saunders, as, as you said, John. So how do we feel about uh, the election so far hinging on Ontario Place plans? And uh, that's kind of a microcosm for me about uh, can, can these people stand up to Doug Ford or will they?
2: I mean, I think for me, it's it, it, for, honestly that the conversation is so focused on Ontario Place and not the complete desert that you're going to leave in the Don Mills and Eglinton Community, Like right. that's the most shocking part. It's like you are sucking the lifeblood out of a community that has been so defined by Flemington Park and so defined by, you know, again, I grew up in Scarborough. And I know enough to know, like in the 70s, uh, sort of like late 60s, 70s, early 80s, the Don Mills in Eglinton was like the new suburb. It was like kind of close to the city, but not so close. And since then, since my childhood, the good old days of the Science Center, it's like that whole part of the city has just been completely like ignored. And, and the idea that you would suck the, the Science Center out, pluck it out, move it to Ontario Place, and then replace all of that with housing. I I don't even know I don't, what kind of housing, like, and, and what about the idea of all the employment and all the, just the energy that's been going to that neighborhood. My worry with this idea of moving the science center to Ontario place is that that area will become a ghetto, like in the, in the widest sense of the word. And there will be like serious issues with not just crime, but decaying, infrastructure, because so much of the investment will be moved into the downtown. And it's just shocking to me that so many people are not even talking about that.
1: Yeah, John, thoughts on Ontario Place?
0: I'd like I've written a lot about Ontario Place. And I've argued that it's an election issue because the next council has to make a decision on it, which the provincial government is in all likelihood going to veto. But I still think that we live in a system where municipalities do land use planning and so i resist the idea that it's a foregone conclusion with respect to the ontario science center i've written about that as well and that idea sort of has been kind of percolating kind of slightly below the surface since about the fall from you know from the documents that we've you know we've seen my general take is this that don mills in eglinton is going to be one of the four or five like intersectional nodes in our rapid transit system um, you know along with young and bloor and saint george and bloor and it's a huge huge development site that whole area it's being up zoned rapidly i think i came across a figure that uh, you know between uh you know between the area right around the you know the intersection and the old celestica plant that you've got Something like 12 million square feet of development is in the pipeline. It's like a lot. A lot of people are going to live there. A lot of people are going to work in that neighborhood. And my general concern before we get to the Science Center is that the city um, and the development community has a way of investing a lot in the things that make money and not in community amenities. And because the province has re- removed the ability of the city to negotiate with developers for civic amenities, that this problem could become exacerbated. So from where I sit, the Science Center represents an opportunity to kind of rethink that building. And Raymond Moriyama's building is spectacular and absolutely worth saving. Like the idea of demolishing it is terrible. But I like the idea that Anna Bailao expressed, which is to say, okay, well, how could this be reused and adapted to a neighborhood where there's a tremendous amount of density plan and not a lot of civic amenity. And because it is a big footprint building, you can do lots of things with it. You could have science programming in there. You could have, you know, community center, daycare, whatever. So I think that's a great opportunity. I hate the idea that they want to knock it down.
1: Yeah. We
0: should be able to plan more intelligently about our built Form heritage, and there's a big opportunity there. I know people in that neighborhood are upset about losing the science center. I get that, but I'm trying to think about what that intersection is going to be like 30 years from now, when there's like a when it'll look a lot more like Young and Eglinton, and what else will be there.
2: But the reason they're upset is because without the science center, let's keep it 100. Why are you going to Don Mills and Edmonton? Unless you live in that community, you probably might not just venture into the neighborhood. That is the major draw. And I just think there isn't a lot of thought to the impact that that's really going to have even into Scarborough, into other parts of North York. Like, I just think there's a wider impact when you take something that is really the biggest draw in that whole like catchment And you, you don't just remove it, you demolish it. So now they can't even, they won't even have any memory that it was there. And you want to remap that into something else. I just have in my mind, I go back to the 1960s removal, i.e. urban renewal, removal projects. And that's exactly what they did. They just like remapped all of these communities for all these interstates and all these highways that you know 10 years on you don't even know what was there all you know is now you have a decaying center somewhere okay. and you don't know how to fix it because the, the it's been so gutted and what what gets me so nervous about this government the provincial government with Doug Ford is how they just are so resistant to public consultation on anything everything always feels like it's a backroom deal and then we just get an announcement the public isn't really consulted and the idea that they're going to push through this through, right. <laughs> to have an Ontario place that, and I think, I can't remember who said it. It might've been an NDP uh, member of provincial parliament was there at the, at, at, she said something. She was like, or it might've been someone else, a city council was like, Ontario place is really supposed to be a public space. I actually don't like anything that they're proposing for Ontario place. Cause it's supposed to be about the public engagement with the waterfront and it I don't like the idea of the spa. I don't like any of it. It just feels so exclusive. And again, there isn't a thought to, let's, to John's point, can we now just imagine 30 years from now? Often things look really good in the planning Thirty years from now, not so good. I think of Malvern. You know, Malvern and in Scarborough was a planned community. They had all these great ideas. Well, the plan didn't execute <laughs> the same way as it did on paper, right? And and right now, it's sad. We're repeating the same mistakes of the past, and we're just not learning from them.
1: Well, uh, Cheryl, John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me.
0: Great, thank you, Quinn.
2: Thank you. Perfect.
1: Now, spacing's latest issue is all about the Ontario line, the new subway line designed to connect the downtown to the north and east and relieve the crowded Yonge line. Shoshana Sachs is an associate professor of civil engineering at the University of Toronto, and she wrote a piece in the issue about how to increase the value we'll get when the Ontario line is built. So, Shoshana, your story in the latest spacing is called, Is It Worth the Money? And you're talking about the Ontario line, and you bring up this kind of idea of a benefit to cost ratio. Now, I am very, uh, you know, math averse, but uh, maybe in the simplest terms, you-, you could explain for for myself and our listeners what that means, like how, how that kind of works.
3: Well, basically, it's checking compared to how much money we spent to build a line, is it giving us enough things in return? So, you know, for instance, if you were going to buy a chocolate bar, you, you do this naturally all the time, right? You think I want a snack. I'm going to buy something, you know, I really like coffee crisp. And so the dollar 50 for coffee crisp, I'm like really on board for that. It's worth it for me. That's going to give me enough pleasure, but then they're out of coffee crisp. And the only thing they're offering you is a Mr. Big. And you're just like, I don't like Mr. Big enough for $1.50. So I'm not going to buy this chocolate bar. I'm just going to wait until I get home and I'll have raisins or something, right? So uh, it's that on a much bigger scale. So we're going to build this line. It's going to have all kinds of impacts on how we move and how we live. Is there enough benefit going on? And, and it could be purely monetary, right? If we were the, If we said we want our transit lines to make money from fares, then it could say, you know, will we recover enough in fares to pay back the cost of of the construction? And we don't do that for transit lines because we recognize they have societal benefit beyond the money the public agency makes from from us putting money in the fare box. And so it's this very complicated process where you say, okay, so we also value that it will move people around faster. So how much do we value that? And then we say, okay, well, for every hour people save, we give that a dollar value. And so for every hour somebody saves, we multiply that by the dollar value, we multiply the number of hours, and that says, okay, we're going to get X billion dollars of benefit. And then we can compare that to how much it costs. And we do that for many different things. It's going to improve our air quality. It's going to change our land use and run it across the gamut. And the things that become sort of controversial or the decisions, the impact, how it comes out depend on, you know, how much do you say time is valuable? How much do you say air quality is valuable? Those are subjective. We don't have a fixed number, right? How much money would you pay to save an hour commuting a week?
1: So in terms of the Ontario line, what was the sort of original value proposition, the BTC ratio for the Ontario line? And How has it changed, and is that ratio kind of disputed, depending on who you ask?
3: Yeah, so the original numbers ranged in between about 75% and about high 90%, uh, and that that was the original report. Now, um, Metrolink says that it's a little bit over 100%, but over time, you'll get slightly more than the money you invested back. People don't tend to go out and argue or have protest signs about the BCR because, like you say, it's very technical. Like I've never been to a protest where people are like, I believe in a BCR of 1.2. But in in the infrastructure community, we do talk about what is a benefit cost ratio that says a project should be a go. Because, for instance, we know from the beginning that there's going to be cost increases. There's always cost increases. In part because we're not very good at predicting in advance all of the things that will happen that cost money, but also because things change over time. You know, if you've ever tried to renovate a bathroom, you know, did it take longer and cost more money than you expected? The answer is always yes. Right. And that's on, you know, that's that's on steroids when you're talking about a massive infrastructure project like the Ontario Line. So people say, okay, well, what kind of safety margin should you have? How much padding should you have in the numbers so that? you're investing in things that end up being worth it. Some people say it should be 1.2. Some people say it should be 1.4. Some people say cost benefit ratios don't really account for all of the things we value. And so you know it's not appropriate to put a monetary cost on air quality or climate change or accessibility to people who can't afford cars. Those are just things we should do as a society and therefore it's fine if it costs us a bunch of money to do that.
1: Right. You mentioned that we often have overruns with major infrastructure projects. Specifically for this project so far, uh, what have been some of the causes of this sort of price tag creep, let's call it?
3: Time. One of them is that prices go up over time. And part of the time that happened here was both the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, which has caused huge increases in cost for all construction projects. And we're seeing that across Ontario on everything that is being built here things are getting more expensive from the scale of a bathroom renovation to the scale of a hospital or a transit line or a highway. Everything is getting more expensive. And part of it is that it depends on who shows up to, b- to bid. Right? There's lots and lots of construction work going on. Construction companies get full up. And the challenges with hiring staff that we're seeing all across society hit construction companies as well. And so prices go up. Um, inflation, you know, all, all the things.
1: How can you improve the benefit-to-cost ratio of a project? You you mentioned in the story that there, there are some fundamental basic ways that uh, you can kind of move that number.
3: Well, you have to either make it cheaper or get more benefits. Cheaper, I think, is a losing game. This project is not going to get much cheaper, and we could spend a lot of time for very marginal benefit, right? Making a big construction project 10% cheaper is really, really hard. And also sometimes in you do what's called de-scoping, take out the good stuff to make it cheaper. Because, um, you know, the one of the easiest things to cut are the things that make it look good or the, the things that make it work well with the community. So what I argue in the article is then we should make it have a lot more benefit. And the ways in which transit lines have benefit is when people use them. So... We should make sure that more people can use this line. And the number one way to do that is to make sure people live and work near the stations. And we have a great opportunity for that in our region because we're growing really, really fast and we have a housing deficit. And so a lot of people need somewhere good to live. Lots of people want to live near good good transit services. And so we can build around the transit stations, do something called transit-oriented development so that there's people who live nearby, who are well-served by the transit. And then if you do mixed use, so you have you know jobs there and food there and destinations near the stations, then people want to go there as well as come from there. And if you can put a lot of people near the stations, a lot of people use it, the benefits go up really quickly.
1: It's, it's also a stated provincial goal uh, to, to have more development around transit stations. Yes. So you... You point to the Young Line in Toronto, which was built throughout the 50s and 60s, as uh, transit done right. What, what about the construction, you know, more than half a century ago uh, of that line makes it makes it so special?
3: So the interesting thing, it's not so much the construction that there were some aspects of it. It was really the planning. Right. Uh, so, so on the planning level, there was a very big effort to coordinate the opening of the Young Line with at people living near the young line and working near the near the young line so the government puts anchor tenants at a lot of the stations if you think of if you think about the young lines at a, at a bunch of them there are government offices right nearby or government agencies there's lots of office buildings nearby you know all even all the way up north where the rest of the area is pretty low density and doesn't have very much employment all along the young line there are employment nearby. Uh, there was zoning incentives put in place to incentivize people to build apartments nearby. And so you know, the majority of the apartments built in the decade after the Young Line were, were built near the new transit stations. And so it meant that there were lots of people using the stations, lots of people going to the stations. And even though at the time the subway was kind of small, like the original Young Line went from uh, Union to Eglinton, I think. I want to double check that. Am I right? Is it Union to Eglinton? I can't remember if it was Union to Eglinton or Union to Lawrence.
1: I believe it was Eglinton. But uh, listeners, you can always uh, write to us at uh, (laughs) SpacingRadio at (laughs) spacing.ca.
3: In my defense, I was born in the 80s. So it's before my time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, it didn't go very many places, but it went places that served people. And so people used it. And it laid the foundation for the subway system to expand in the coming decades. Um, Toronto was held up around the world as an example of a city that did transportation, subway, land use planning really, really well, right? There are case studies written about us and, you know, American academics fawning over how great transportation planning was in Toronto. It was certainly North American famous, but also world famous at the time for being really, really good at this. And, you know, I tell that people that story now and they laugh and people don't remember a time when Toronto was world famous for our
1: great planning. What changed? How did did we lose that culture of really good planning?
3: So I'm not entirely sure. Again, it was before my time. Um, Part of it was that when you're not paying attention to the success or what created it, it can feel it can be really easy to take it for granted. that you build the subway station and everything naturally works out. A part of it was that for a while we stopped building subway stations. And so the memory of how to do that well faded away. Right. So there was a long gap in between line two opening and the next time we started building a big line. And then even after that, right, we built the Shepherd line in the 90s. When I started working on subway construction in, you know, in the 2010s, it had been again a decade. Right, A lot of institutional memory had been lost.
1: You also write in the story that, uh, you know, the Doug Ford government is kind of working to cross purposes with itself, that it risks actually tipping the that uh, benefit-to-cost ratio uh, in into the negative, or is that how ratios work? Is negative good or bad?
3: Under one. Under one is bad. Okay.
1: That that, that they're shooting themselves in the foot with some of their other stated priorities, like the, uh, you know, expansion of the green belt and building highways. Can, can you explain how something all the way over in the green belts uh, or, or, you know, highway 413 can sort of tip the scales of the value for money that we get with a downtown subway line.
3: So when you're building infrastructure, you're incentivizing people to live in certain places, to travel in certain places, to work in certain places, and you're incentivizing companies to do the same. And so if you're spending 15 to $20 billion to build a subway line downtown, you're incentivizing people to be downtown, to be in the city, to be along the um, Ontario line. If you're simultaneously spending fifteen to twenty billion dollars to build highways, you're incentivizing people to be outside of the city and to invest in cars and be um, have all of their travel be by cars. And once people have cars, need cars for some of their trips, they're more likely to use cars for all of their trips. Right? It's like a it's a step change. Once you're in it, you're in it. It's the same thing with other modes of transportation. And so. With one hand, we're telling people, we're investing in this transportation line, you should build around it, this is where you should live, you you should put your jobs here, and the other people, we're, we're telling people to do the opposite. And the Ford government is doubling down. I mean, even the planning changes that were announced last week, which are saying we're going to build at even lower density in even more places, are incentivizing people to move away from the city, to move away from public transit, and to be more car-dominated, which undermines investments like the Ontario line. And our status quo for decades at this point has been, you know, subdivisions part oriented. And so it's hard to, you know, it's a steamship. It's hard to slow down the ship and change direction. And the 13, 14, 20 billion dollars of an Ontario line compared to the sheer scale of that steamship, especially if we're putting more energy into it, is is a big challenge.
1: Well, Shoshana, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell everyone you know who didn't vote last October. If you have a moment, please give us a rating on iTunes as it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at track 82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or tips, you can tweet at us at SpacingRadio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. The latest issue of the magazine is in stores now, and it's all about the Ontario line. Go pick one up or consider subscribing. In the meantime, how about those Leafs?